scripture says love covers a multitude of sins and and there is a sense in which if you went looking for people to ask forgiveness from you're going to be doing nothing else all day devoid of the power that the gospel gives you should despair you're listening to 1a a podcast from first presbyterian church episode 13 this week we conclude our inaugural series on the topic of desire with a Q&A with Dr. Derek Thomas. I'm Josh Squires, the Minister of Counseling and Congregational Care here at First Press. Welcome to the 1A, a podcast designed to look at how to apply biblical principles in our day-to-day lives. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. For more information, you can check us out at our website, which is firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can find all our episodes there, as well as links on how to subscribe. If this is a ministry that you enjoy, then we appreciate it if you would subscribe using the application of your choice. You can use iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. While you're there, leave us some comments. As we increase the number of reviews and comments, it becomes easier for others to find our podcast. Today, we'll be bringing back Dr. Derek Thomas to answer some of your questions. We'll discuss what it means if you struggle with the same desires your entire Christian life, Christ's temptability, and how ready we need to be to forgive others. But first, let me take a moment to thank our listeners for tuning in this season. It's been a labor of love, but incredibly rewarding to produce this on a week-to-week basis. I especially want to thank all of you for your feedback. Hopefully, we'll be able to incorporate more in the future as we become more skilled at this venture. Speaking of which, there are changes on the horizon. We're going to change the format a little for the spring. I don't want to give it all away now, but be looking for another preview episode sometime in January for more information. Now, let's get to our interview. I'm here with Dr. Thomas. We're doing our wrap-up Q&A. This episode, so let me start with a few of the questions that we've received uh, through your texts and tweets, emails. First one, Dr. Thomas, I find that I struggle with the same kind of desires now as I did when I first became a Christian. Am I doing something wrong? Yes, because as Christians, we're perfect, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. Every Christian struggles with sin from the moment of regeneration and union with Christ until that moment of transformation at death and and we're ushered into the presence of Jesus. So some t- basic texts here would be Galatians 5.17, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. Or the second half of Romans 7, and I I still view that in an Augustinian sense, that this is descriptive of the Christian life, that the good that I would, I do not, the evil that I would not, that I find I do. And and that cry that, uh, that Paul utters in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. And, and he talks about having a law in his mind, that seems to be contrary to the law in his flesh. So, so he's a conflicted man. He's, he's a man, uh, who wants to do two things. And his flesh is saying, 
one thing and his his mind his his new self if you like is saying something else and these are these are at war with each other and sometimes the flesh wins out and and sometimes the mind or the new self by the power of the holy spirit wins out um but it's a constant um struggle it's a fight uh it was alexander uh, alexander white uh, who said it's a sore fight all the way. Mm. Actually, he said it in a Scottish accent with some <laughs> S- Scottish words, but but translated, uh, it's a sore fight all the way. I mean, just think of Pilgrim's Progress as a paradigm here of the Christian life. And, you know, Christian Christian is in this slew, slough, slough of mm. despond. He's, he's fighting Apollyon. Uh, he's meeting temptation. He wanders off the track. He's in the castle of, of giant despair, even at one point contemplating taking his life. Mm-hmm. So at every stage of the journey, even, even as he's passing through the river at the very end of his journey, he feels the ground giving way under him. Uh, so it's a, it's a struggle uh, all the way. I think that one of the questions behind that question is when people begin to feel despair because they're fighting the same struggles that they've had their Christian life long, what do they do? Well, there are, there are two aspects to that question. One is that we should feel despair. Uh, despair of, of ourselves, our, our former selves, our Adamic selves, our, our selves without the help of the Holy Spirit, our un regenerate selves but our our regenerate self still prone to succumb to temptation and and there is no hope in that aspect of us that devoid of the spirit devoid of christ devoid of the gospel devoid of the power that the gospel gives you should despair so so there's one sense in which if you're not struggling i mean if if you don't if you don't ever feel that that Oh, wretched man feeling. If you, if you never experience some aspect of despair, then, then, you, you know, you, you have to begin to doubt. Are you really a Christian? Um, because one of the, one of the things of being a Christian is you, you really, really want to be holy. You really want to be like, like Jesus. Now, the other aspect of the question, is the use of the word despair and despair can mean different things and 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 despair can have a sinful connotation to it so let me let me let me shift the word let me let me use a different word just so we don't get into sort of psychological issues here um conflicted um that if you if you never experience that conflictedness then then there's something, there's something else that you need to address and you need to address whether you actually understand the gospel. But, but how do I, how do I overcome that conflictedness? And of course, Paul answers the question in Romans 7, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Romans 7, uh, Romans 7, 24 and 25. So, so the, the answer lies in, the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, and and there's things that you have to do. You know, reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. But that's 
That's something that you have to tell yourself. Mm. I am in Christ. I am a new man. I don't have to listen to sin. Mm. I don't have to say how far when sin says jump. Mm. He is no longer my master. No, I, I live at times as though he is my master. And hence Paul can say in Romans 7, I'm sold under sin. That's a tough thing to say mm. for a Christian because in one sense, I'm not sold under sin. I'm, I'm not a slave to sin. I'm a I'm a slave to Christ. I'm a servant of Christ now. But when I sin, I act as though, I behave as though I'm sold into sin. I, I behave as though I belong to the devil. The second question that we got, um, I don't understand what it means for Christ to be sinless and tempted at the same time. When I'm tempted, I think of the thing I'm not supposed to do. And isn't that sinful? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is an interesting question. It's a, it's actually quite a difficult question. And, and yet it, it would be the same question if, if instead of using the, the name Christ here, we used the name Adam. You know, Adam was sinless in the garden, but he was tempted and temptable. Right. So the, so the sinless aspect of it isn't just a problem for, for Jesus in this kind of, question that's being asked here it's also the same problem that we would have for adam in the garden so so let's 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 start somewhere and say first of all that jesus is sinless and you've got second corinthians five twenty one. if if um, god made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be reckoned the righteousness of god in him so jesus is without sin but he's temptable now Theologians, this is going to make it a little more complicated, but theologians distinguish between sinlessness and impeccability, although frequently preachers use them as synonyms, but actually they're two different concepts. Sinlessness is the description that Jesus is without sin. Impeccability is that Jesus cannot be, cannot sin. One, one is that he is without sin. Impeccability means that he cannot sin. Well, the cannot part of it is, is a kind of, convoluted theological reason that his humanity is united to his deity and and if he was capable of sin whatever is true of either nature is true of the person because of the hypostatic union and that would mean that 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 he god is capable of sin and that leads you into all kinds of confusion but let's get back to let's get back to the human nature of jesus he is without sin but he's temptable now, he's not temptable from within himself. In other words, we are temptable because we are fallen. We are temptable because there is an inner voice, if I put it that way, that, that actually desires to sin. We have an inner desire to sin. There is what we might call an inner lust, lust in the generic sense of the term. Um, there is a predisposition to sin. There is a fallenness. Now, Jesus wasn't fallen. He didn't inherit fallen human nature. He inherited human nature. So the temptability of Jesus doesn't arise from any lust within himself. It arises from from outside of himself. Mm. So what is it? And, and let's go to the temptation narratives when when Jesus is driven into the wilderness, fasting 40 days, Satan comes. There are three temptations. What is it that, that Satan tries to get at? And, and it's not, it's not something within him. It's not his fallenness that Satan tries to get at. It's his identity. 
So let's take one of them. Uh, he's been fasting 40 days. Uh, if you are the son of God, why, why don't you, I'm mad living now, but why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What, what is Satan trying to do there? Well, he's he's tempting Jesus on a, first of all, on a human level, changing stones into bread would not be sinful. Eating bread isn't sinful. But for Jesus to to do this, to to use his son of Godness, since you're the son of God, why don't you use your son of Godness to to feed yourself because you're starving and you're dying? Well, the moment he would have done that, he would no longer have been our substitute. He had come to be the servant. He had come to take human nature, and and you and I can't t- turn rocks into bread, you know, when we find ourselves hungry. So it it would have been a, a misuse of who he is, and and who he is is the dependent servant of the Lord. So Satan is is getting at something that is his role to try and do something that wouldn't in and of itself have been sinful, but it would have been it would have violated his role as the servant of the Lord. So so there's that there's that difference between the way Jesus is being tempted here and and um the way we are tempted. We are tempted because we have a disposition to sin. Although, and let me let me take this a, a one step further. Although Jesus isn't capable of sinning because he's God, mm-hmm. in his human nature he didn't know that. I, I don't think that's something that he would have known, right? So, so Jesus lives in his human nature with the temptation, and it's a real temptation. He doesn't know the outcome. He doesn't know. Yes, I'm going to pass this test. I'm actually going to going to rise and ascend and and I'm going to win this battle right that's not something that he he believe he has to believe that so, so at, at every point satan satan can challenge that faith of his now scripture I mean on a completely different level scripture says Jesus was tempted in every point like as we are so so every aspect of his humanity was tempted well, and I suspect that this is the question that lies behind this one, which is, does Christ really know what it's like for me to be tempted in whatever area that I feel temptation? I mean, yes and no. Uh, you know, there's an aspect of our temptation that we experience at a level of our fallenness. right? And, and Jesus doesn't have that. But was Jesus tempted... With hunger, yes. Was he tempted to to deny the task that he had taken up? Yes. Was he tempted sexually? Yes. I think in in John chapter two, the woman at the uh, John four, the woman at the well. I think that is that is a sexual temptation passage. Although people are somewhat nervous of interpreting it that way, but but uh, this woman has said I said. Five husbands, she's with another one, and now Jesus is here. And the, and the language is full of innuendo about well and drawing water and, and so on. Um, so, so yes, J- Jesus has been tempted in every, in every area. He is tempted like we are, 
but the way in which he is tempted is unique to his sinless condition. It's more like the way Adam was tempted. So do you think that Christ actually experiences that temptation more intensely than than we would experience it? Because he's he's sinless, and there's the weight of his not sinning and the future of humanity that weighs on his not sinning. Well, yes, yes. Uh, but let me approach it from a different point of view. How much, how much does, does, how much effort does Satan have to do, put in to tempt you? Well, the fact of the matter is, Josh, that that you and I have probably never encountered Satan. We've encountered his, his underlings, right? Satan is, is, is not ubiquitous. He's not everywhere. So, so, so he can't, he can't be tempting everybody at the same time. So he has, he has lots of, of interns to do this. And he can send a lowly intern to deal with me. But for Jesus, he has to come in person. And he has to use all of his cunning and, and all of his craft, you know, and that's where something like C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, uh, you know, demonstrates that, that actually the temptation of Jesus is at a, a, an nth degree higher than, than our temptation. He only has to suggest the sin to us and we've already fallen. Right, we're we're there. We're ahead of him. Been there, done it. Got the T-shirt. Uh, for for Jesus, Satan, Satan has to use all of his craft. Yeah, and I think that's important because the sentiment behind things like this, as I see it in the counseling room, is that Jesus doesn't know my temptation and my struggle because he was sinless, so he can't possibly know what it's like. When actually, what I want to do is I want to flip the script on people and say. Not only does he, he know that, but he actually knows it at a, at, a, at a deeper, more intense level than you'll ever know. Well, I would always send somebody, you know, in, who's thinking like that into Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. And, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He, he is being tempted to give up this race, this task, this mission, right there. Mm-hmm. With an intensity, a, de- a degree of temptation that is, that is, that is bigger than anything you've ever imagined. Right? So I would take him into Gethsemane and say, stand by Jesus here and say, you don't know what I'm going through. Okay, last one. It says, is it ever okay to wait until someone else repents first before we do? My, and then they list a family member, struggles with alcohol, and I've asked forgiveness for any hurt I've caused them lots of times but they have never asked my forgiveness. Even if I know I've done something wrong, and what I've done is not nearly as bad as what they've done to me, shouldn't they have to come to me first for once? Uh, well, first of all, I lived with an alcoholic father, so I, I, I know what this question is asking. Uh, so this, I'm not giving a theoretical answer here. Uh, you know, there are two views here. Feel, there's a pastoral answer I need to give. But let me give a theological answer first of all, because there are two views. You know, is is the granting of forgiveness unconditional? Uh, and there are folk who say and and use this term. You know, you should forgive unconditionally. And there's a sense in which that is true, and there's a sense in which that is not true, because there's a sense in which God doesn't forgive unconditionally. And if you don't repent, if you don't believe the gospel, God doesn't forgive you. So so there there is a 
condition of sorts. You know, there are texts, and one is Luke 17 and verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother repents, forgive him. But there's a conditional clause. If your brother repents, forgive him. Luke 17, um, 3. But then there are, you know, there are tons of other verses. And uh, let me just pick out a couple at random. Uh, Matthew 6, 15 in the Sermon on the Mount, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And, and those appear to be sort of unconditional, we're supposed to forgive. And, and I, I think, I, my own personal view is, there should be no barriers on our part to forgiveness. We should be ready to forgive. There should be no conditions on our part that prevent us from from being willing to grant forgiveness. But I, I frankly don't know what it means simply to say, I forgive you. Because in a sense, that that might be pastorally the wrong thing to do, to say, I forgive you to somebody who hasn't repented. Because they need to repent. It's in their interest to repent. It's, it's, it's what God is asking them to do. So, so, but, but I can't, I can't use, uh, anything on my part as the barrier to, to that forgive. If there's a barrier, the barrier is on his side. He, he needs to repent. Now, not everybody agrees with me on that position and, and, you know, conservative Christians have been on both sides and, uh, um, I've seen articles, for example, sort of, here's one side, here's another side. And actually, I think I wrote one many years ago on one side of this issue. And I'm still on that side of the issue. I don't know. I simply don't know what it means simply to say, I forgive you. Mm. I forgive you. Mm. I forgive you. Mm. Um, And it's, in one sense, that's a rather easy thing to say. But I'm not sure what it means. And I think that for me, the pastorally, the, 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 the pastorally good thing to do is to, is to encourage that person's repentance. But make sure that the barrier isn't on your side. Mm. You know, you're holding grudges, you're holding out. I'm ready to forgive. Right? There are no barriers on my part. But you, Bert, you do need to repent. But if he does repent, you need to, you need to bestow that forgiveness immediately. Mm. So would you, if this person knows that they have done something wrong in this instance, and on the spectrum, it seems to be relatively minor, would you encourage them to go and be and repent first? Or is it okay for them to say, look, in, in the grand scheme of things, you've done the most wrong. So I'm waiting for you to initiate this kind of repentance. I don't think he's ever right to sort of weigh who's done the most wrong here i'm you know i may i may have that perception that i'm the one most wronged chances are he that that the other side thinks that too but that's not the stance that i'm suggesting here about being ready to forgive being ready to forgive means you're not weighing you know who's who's got who's got most to forgive here because in every conflict if truth be told there's a there's a need for forgiveness on both sides. Mm. It, you know, the innocent party, and there is a relative innocence here, but 
but no one is really ever truly innocent, except in very, very unique circumstances. Uh, you know, like, like say, rape. I mean, that, uh, I, I, that for sure. But typically, in a conflict situation, the, the thing has escalated way beyond what the whatever the initial thing was. There's a whole lot of baggage now that 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 I I also need to repent. I also need to ask forgiveness. I think this particular question came out of the episode that Brad Anderson and David Henderson and I did. And one of the things that we talked about was that we should be those who lead in repentance, that we should be going to our spouses, we should be going to our children, we should be going to our church members, looking for when we have hurt them and being willing um, uh, and almost prioritize repenting to them and asking for their forgiveness. Right, although that can go too far. I mean, that can become... You know, the, the scripture says love covers a multitude of sins. And, and there is a sense in which, you know, in the Christian life, if you, if you went looking for people to, to ask forgiveness from, you're going to be doing nothing else all day, you know, and, and there is a, there is a, a sense in which there is an understanding that love covers a multitude of sins. And, um, you know, only, only where, where real barriers and real conflict are set in, you know, would I urge people to do that? The the second thing that came out of I think that episode was someone who, similarly to this person with a family member, has somebody who has struggled with the same issue. I think it may have been lust of pornography, and has had them come to them on multiple occasions asking for forgiveness and repenting, and wants to know like do I. Do I have to continue to forgive this person even if I have the sense that they're going to fall into the sin yet again and it's going to hurt me? 70 times 7 was Jesus' answer. So, so you know, if it's the 78th time, I'm prepared to have this discussion. But if it's not the 78th time, Jesus has a word for you. Thank you again for being with us. You're welcome. You've been listening to 1A, a counseling ministry of First Presbyterian Church. We encourage you to listen to all of our episodes, which you can find on our webpage, which is firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can also check us out on all your favorite podcast applications, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe. Also, don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. If you have comments questions, or an issue that you'd like us to wrestle with, contact us. You can contact us via email at 1A at firstpreskolumbia.org. That's 1A at firstpreskolumbia.org. Or on Twitter at 1A Podcast. That's at 1A Podcast. Or you can call us by phone, 803-281-1795. That's 803-281-1795. We look forward to seeing you next season and hope that this material has helped you to live out the gospel for each other and for the kingdom. Until then, God bless.